All right, our passage today is Galatians chapter 2. Uh, just a reminder, this is a section of Scripture where Paul is defending the gospel, and in the first two chapters of Galatians, he's defending his apostolic credentials and authority. It's a, some people call it the autobiographical argument. He's defending himself because they were attacking him, and by attacking him, they were attacking the gospel. So he first needs to defend his authority. And he's telling the story of his life, and he continues it in verse 1 of Galatians 2. He says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, this passage uh, details for us the second time that Paul the Apostle went to Jerusalem as a Christian. Uh, before he was a Christian, Paul had spent lots of time in Jerusalem. He studied in Jerusalem. He knew people in Jerusalem. But there was a moment, as we look, looked at and thought about last week, when Paul left Jerusalem to go to a city called Damascus in, Samir, in uh, Syria, uh, where he was going to persecute Christians. And on his way there, a bright light shone, and he was knocked to the ground, and he heard a voice, and the voice was Jesus, and he was converted. His life was transformed. But what we saw last week is that instead of then getting up and going back to Jerusalem and reporting to the original apostles there in Jerusalem, like, hey, guys, huge praise report. I know I just left a few days ago so I could go persecute Christians, but now I'm one of you guys. Rather than doing that, Paul kept going, and he went to a city called Damascus, and he met with Christians there. They prayed together. They convened together, and then Paul went further into Arabia, and for three years, he was uh, kind of alone, hearing from the Lord, letting his theology and doctrine uh, marinate. He was spending time, he said, with Jesus. He received a revelation from the Lord. We saw in our passage uh, last week. Then, as we saw last week, after three years of being a Christian, Paul made his first trip to Jerusalem. And when he went there, he didn't go so that he could get a certificate that he was an apostle. He didn't go for a theological exam. I've been studying for three years, and I want to run my doctrine by you guys. He went there, he said, just to visit Peter 
and to visit with James, the Lord's brother who had become the top apostle in the church of Jerusalem. So he went there for relational connection with these men who were a really big deal in the early church, and then he left. And what he says there in our passage last week is that he left for a period of time to Syria and Cilicia. Uh, He was preaching while he was gone, And there came a moment when, after about a decade of preaching, mostly probably in his hometown of Tarsus, uh, there was this church that was in uh, Syria in the the city of Antioch. Paul wasn't known by this church. He wasn't part of this church. There was a man named Barnabas who was leading that church. Barnabas shows up in this passage today. Uh, Barnabas saw that things were going really well in the church in Antioch, and Barnabas had a stroke of genius, of brilliance. I think the Lord gave it to him. He said to himself, I need to go get Paul, who's in Tarsus, and I need to bring him to this little revival that we're having in the church in Antioch. So he went and got Paul, and for a year, Paul and Barnabas led the church in Antioch. Can Can you just imagine it? I mean, I wish they had been able to podcast those sermons. So encouraging from Barnabas, so solid from Paul. I mean, just amazing. After about a year, a group of prophets, the book of Acts tells us, came up from the church in Jerusalem to visit the church in Antioch. Not in a hostile way, but in a friendly way. And when they were there, one of the prophets, a prophet named Agabus, he began to declare that, or predict that at some point in the near future, there was going to be a famine that impacted the Roman Empire. So a major, major economic downturn was about to hit the Roman Empire. Now, the church in Jerusalem was already pretty poor at that point. There might have been a bunch of factors for that, some of them being political, some of them even being practical. At the beginning, when Christians got saved, there in Jerusalem, they all gave everything away. They sold everything, gave it all away. So maybe now, 15 years later, they're like, well, we probably shouldn't have done that. But they were poor. And so Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch, the book of Acts tells us, prayed about it, and they decided to take a collection and bring it to Jerusalem. This is probably the trip that is described here in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul is there with Barnabas and Titus to bring a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. Now, I'm saying all that so that you'll understand that Paul did not go there 14 years into his life in Jesus in order again to try to get any apostolic uh, paperwork that gave him permission to say or do what he was saying and doing. But when he was there, uh, and he says, I just went there because of a revelation. God told me to do it. But when he was there, he does this thing, it says in verse two, where he decided to privately set the gospel that he preached among the Gentile world before the apostles. It was a private meeting. He didn't want to have a big public theological council about it, but just privately he wanted to run this gospel by the apostles. Now you might think that the reason that Paul was doing that was because he thought to himself, oh no, what if I've been preaching the wrong gospel for the last 14 years? There are no indications at all that that's what Paul was thinking. In fact, at the beginning of this letter, he says, if I or anyone preaches a different message than I've already preached, they need to be cut off. They're anathema. We should have nothing to do with them. He was very secure in the message that he preached. But I think that Paul saw something when he went to Jerusalem. He saw that the apostles, they believed the gospel. 
They preached the gospel, but in Jerusalem, there were legalists. Some people call them Judaizers because they were taking Jesus and adding Judaism. They were saying, if you really wanna be a for real Christian, you need to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you need to add Judaism to your faith. Now, because this was the Jerusalem church, and since most people were already Jewish in the Jerusalem church, it didn't seem like a big doctrinal issue to the apostles. But for Paul, when he got there, he realized that because these men were being silent about this thing that was happening, it might turn into approval for that doctrine. And if that spread into the Gentile world that he'd been preaching in, he was worried that every, he says, I was worried that what I had preached or the race that I had run would be run in vain. He didn't want everything that he'd done for the Gentiles to be unwound by this false gospel. That's why he gave this a message, uh, showed this message to the apostles. Now, Paul happened to bring the perfect ministry team for a meeting like this. I mean, for a meeting that's gonna figure out, uh, do you need to add something to, uh, do you need to add Judaism or anything to the gospel in order to be approved by God? He brought the perfect people. Now, he brought two people we know. One was named Barnabas. Uh, he, as I said, was the leader of the church in Antioch. And the thing about Barnabas is that Barnabas was a Jew. He was a Levite. He would have been well respected by many people, Christian and non-Christian in Jerusalem. To put a guy like Barnabas on the stand and to say, Barnabas, tell me what you have seen out there in the Gentile world when the gospel was preached by Paul. And now Barnabas, a, a Jew, say, well, what I saw is these people who without adopting Judaism, without taking on any practice of the Sabbath or circumcision or feasts or festivals, they were clearly accepted by God. The Spirit of God filled them. They began learning the Word of God. They began bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. To have testimony like that would have been a killer testimony, killer witness. But the second guy that Paul brought was this man named Titus. Titus is spoken of often in the New Testament, never in the book of Acts, though. He shows up in Paul's letters, including an entire letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a Gentile man who was growing up quick in the church. He was becoming a pillar. He was becoming a leader in the church. And so what Paul realized was Titus has been out here for years. He's been growing in the word. He's been preaching the word. He's been starting churches, and he has never for a moment felt compelled to adopt Judaism. He's never felt compelled to that. So let's see what happens when we bring him to Jerusalem. In other words, it was kind of like Titus was the ultimate lab rat for the gospel. <laughs> We're gonna experiment a little bit on this guy. And if when he gets there, he feels a pressure to adopt or add something to the message of the gospel, then we will know that we've gotten it wrong. So Paul brings Titus into town. The question was, was the gospel, gospel enough? Would they pressure a man like Titus to submit to Jewish religious practices? Well, look at verse three with me. It shows us that thankfully the gospel was enough because Paul said that Titus was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. 
All right, now this is the first time that the book of Galatians uses the word or talks about the subject circumcision. Uh, it's going to become a recurring subject to a degree in the book of Galatians. Uh, it might seem like a little bit of an alien or awkward subject for you. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry if this is your first day visiting with us today. <laughs> but this issue was of central importance to the legalists who followed Paul around. He would go to various towns. He would preach the gospel. Gentiles, non-Jewish people would get saved. And then this group would come in behind him and say, here's what you guys need to do now. You need to add this. And circumcision was kind of a major first step for them. Now, the origin of this subject in the Bible, at least, is found all the way back in the book of Genesis. When God chose to bless Abraham. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that when God promised uh, to Abraham uh, that he would make him into a great nation and that he would also become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. What, what that promise meant as the scripture unfolded was that uh, the nation of Israel would come from Abraham's offspring and that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from Israel. So through Jesus, who is from Israel, who is from Abraham, all the nations of the earth can be blessed. Anybody of any nation, tribe, or tongue can receive Jesus, and that's a fulfillment of the Genesis 12, one through three passage. But as a way to mark Abraham and his family line as blessed by God, you know, to, to kind of give a, a reminder, an indication, hey, I've called you, you're mine, I've chosen you, I got a program here on earth and I'm using you to complete that program. God gave Abraham and his descendants, his male descendants, obviously, the sign of circumcision. And because it affected the male reproductive system, what it should have done is served as a reminder that God was going to help them reproduce and become that great nation that God had promised to Abraham. And that ultimately from their line, the Messiah would come who would bless all the nations of the earth. But over the years, many people stopped seeing circumcision like that as a reminder of God's promise. And they started seeing it as a key to righteousness. Because we do this, God blesses us. Because we do this, God loves us. If men didn't submit to it, they said, they could not earn God's approval. So that's not at all what the message was meant to convey, but that's what they began thinking it conveyed. So when Paul began preaching the gospel throughout the nations, there were some in the Jerusalem area who thought, they need to add circumcision to the message. And attached to circumcision would have been a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Dietary restrictions, uh, religious feasts, fasting days, uh, Sabbaths. These legalists would have attached the ceremonial Old Testament law of God to circumcision in the Gentile world. But all these religious regulations that God gave to Israel were not meant as means of earning God's approval, but as reminders of and paths to enjoy the approval that God had already given to them. And this was the whole issue at stake in this passage. I'm giving you an overview of it. Is God's acceptance something that we earn 
or something that we receive. And praise God, Titus was not forced to add anything to the message of the cross. So I'm gonna spend the rest of my time closing this out today by showing you three things that we learn about the gospel or are reminded of about the, go- the gospel from this story, from this passage, from this interaction. And the first one is just what I mentioned just a moment ago. The gospel and the righteousness attached to it is received, not earned. It's received, not earned. Titus could remain as he was. He could not earn God's favor. He could only receive it through the gospel of grace, the message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. A friend of mine was uh, recently told me a story about a a cruise he took his family on many, many years ago when his children were still little. They're adults now, but he said that when they got on board for their first day of the cruise, and it was kind of one of those uh, all expenses paid, you just pay the fee and you can eat as much as you want and gain 20 pounds in three days or whatever. But uh, when they got on board, he went to his little son and he pointed out this ice cream cart that was on the deck of the boat. And he said, you know, son, do you see that ice cream cart? He said, if, if you want ice cream, all you have to do is just go stand in line and you can have an ice cream. You can get an ice cream. So his son was like, I'm down. I'm down right now. So he got in line and the family just started kind of slowly walking away, letting him get his ice cream on his own. And they eventually started looking around like, has he, has he rejoined us? Has he reconnected with us? And they looked back to the ice cream cart and they saw him as a little boy just standing there bawling. No ice cream in his hand, just bawling. And so they went back to him and they said, hey, what, what's the matter? What, what's wrong? And he said, well, I got in line and then I realized I don't have any money to buy ice cream. He thought his dad had just kind of said to him, like, if you can afford it, you can have all the ice cream you want. (laughs) So his father leaned down, pointed out the little wristband that they put on his wrist, and he said, son, no, this wristband means that you can walk up to any of these things during the whole trip, and all they're gonna do is look to see if this is on, and they'll give you whatever you ask for. And so he said for the rest of the trip, it was on. Take one sip of a slushie, throw it away. Take one lick of an ice cream cone, <laughs> throw it away. You know, he just was very wasteful, but really enjoyed that all-access pass that had been given to him. I think that this is often our attitude toward the blessings that God gives. I can't afford it. I haven't earned it, and I don't have anything to contribute to get it, therefore I can't attain it. But that's the point. We don't have the resources, yet Jesus does. So when we receive the gift of Jesus' substitutional death for us, we receive a radical position before God. It's not something that is earned by us, but received. This is different from, honestly, the other religions of the world and philosophies of the world, including hijacked versions of Christianity where the message is, this is advice, this is how you need to live, this is what you must do in order to be approved by society or approved by God. Christianity is not that. It's not advice, it's news. It's news that tells us what Jesus has accomplished, and that by believing in what he's accomplished, we receive the standing of being in Christ, and we receive the blessing that comes with being in him. The Bible says that when we place our faith in Christ, we become, Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is day one of your Christian life. Like I said, every other religion, it's, you know, you're climbing a ladder, you're climbing the mountain, and maybe you'll get to a point where you can say, I'm blessed with most of the spiritual blessings that are in this system of belief. But as a Christian, on day one, by faith, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're ours because they belong to Jesus, and now we belong to him. But I think that the temptation to earn God's acceptance through our actions, it's very hard for us to resist. I mean, we live in a world that communicates over and over again just through everyday life that good things are earned. (laughs) That's just the way it is. Uh, People go to school for many years, they get advanced degrees, and then they enter into impressive and well-paying fields. You know, you don't get your GED and then apply to be a brain surgeon. We know how this works. You don't get paid like that. You don't get to do stuff like that. You gotta, you gotta earn it. You gotta, you gotta pay your dues. You gotta do your time. But once we embrace that grid towards God, once we embrace works righteousness before him, what we begin doing is believing that we can earn more from God for certain behaviors. We create these little salary structures in our minds before him. If I pray this much, this is what he'll owe me. If I read this much, this is what he'll owe me. If I go to church this much, this is what he'll owe me. But that's not what it is. We're doing those things in a response to the incredible, lavish, immeasurable gift of grace that he has bestowed upon us merely because we've accepted the gift of his only begotten son. It's just beautiful. I looked up the other day and and found that there's a WikiHow page on how to receive gifts. Apparently, some people aren't very good at this, so they need diagrams <laughs> and uh, you know, 14 different points on how to receive gifts. Like Some of them say, like, you, know, you need to smile when you receive a gift, but not too big where they feel like you're being disingenuous, but, uh, disingenuous, but th- that you're being for real. Uh, sincerely thank them, but again, not over the top, and they're like, I just gave you like a little $5 Starbucks card, and you're acting like I just gave you a brand new car, like that you're freaking me out. So it's some good tips in there. But the last tip I thought was so interesting, it was don't compete with the giver. Don't compete with the giver. Don't get into a giving contest where you have to try to one-up them because you don't want to be in their debt. But I think a lot of us do this with God. We try to earn the gift of acceptance and all the other things that God blesses us with. So daily, we have to remember that the gospel and its benefits are received, not earned. Okay, the second part of the passage, verse four and five, it reminds us that the gospel brings divine freedom and not human control. Divine freedom and not human control. Let me explain what I mean to you from verse four and five. It tells us there that when Paul was in Jerusalem, of false brothers were secretly brought in, he says. Uh, They might have even come into the very meeting that he was having privately with the apostles. Like these guys come in, they look like they love the Lord, they look like they're Christians, but he calls them false brothers. Uh, He uses espionage language to describe them. He says that they they came in secretly, uh, they, they spied out our freedom in Christ. And that's what they were looking at. They, they noticed 
and were offended by the freedom that Paul and his team had in Christ Jesus. There was something about the way that Paul and Barnabas and Titus were living, probably just as they were hanging out with each other. You got a Gentile and two very obviously Jewish men who had been steeped in Jewish history and customs, and they love each other. They're just being together. They're spending time together. There's no wall of separation between them. They saw this freedom, and it bothered them. Uh, To me, it's reminiscent of the way that the religious leaders often treated Jesus' disciples. You know, they would come to these disciples just befuddled at the way that they were acting. Now, how come the rest of us aren't allowed to take a little handful of grain on the Sabbath and eat it for a snack while we're traveling, but you guys do? Or how come when we eat a meal, we have this whole ceremonial hand-washing thing that we do to kind of like cleanse ourselves spiritually before God, but you guys don't do that? Or, or, or why do we distance ourselves when we're eating and drinking from people like tax collectors and sinners, but you guys, you don't care? Like how do you have that level of freedom, they asked Jesus and his disciples. And I think that these legalists were struggling with the same thing as they looked at Paul and Titus and his team, but it says in verse five that Titus would not yield submission for even a moment. Not even for a moment, it says. The preservation of the gospel was at stake, Paul says in verse 5. So they didn't feel compelled at all to obey these Judaizers. But again, notice what they saw in Paul and his team. They saw freedom in Christ. And what did they want to do to Paul and his team? Look at it in verse 4. They wanted to bring them into slavery. (laughs) They see the freedom and they go, we don't like that. We want to lock you up. We want to get you to to think like us, to get in our grid, our way of doing and being. But the gospel, it brings divine freedom, not human control. You know, for a lot of us, the word freedom, it it, it contains the idea that we can do whatever we want. Uh, No one restricts us. We have complete freedom. We can look at whatever we want, say whatever we want, do whatever we want. No one is over us. And the Bible really doesn't communicate that brand of freedom. There are going to be times that we're called to submit to authority structures that God allows and places in our lives. That version of freedom is often destructive and paralyzing. That's why I'm saying it brings us divine freedom, because there's a better version of freedom that the gospel gives to us. Uh, Paul's going to get to that point in Galatians chapter 5, which I'll read in a moment, but I think John Ortberg has a great description of it in his book on soul care, he said, think of freedom coming in two flavors, two kinds of freedom. There's a freedom from external constraints, somebody telling me what to do. This is freedom from. But there's another kind of freedom that might be called freedom for. There's the freedom for living the kind of life I was made to live. Freedom for becoming the man that I most want to be. Freedom for. That's the case that Paul is going to build in the book of Galatians, that we should use our freedom to fly up into a life of love and goodness with God. He'll say in Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then here's the big one, Galatians 5 13, for you were called to freedom brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. And again, our freedom isn't so that we can just do, say, hear, 
feel, experience whatever we want to. Our freedom is meant to give us the ability to, through love, serve one another. And it's through the gospel that we can come into this beautiful version of divine liberty, a freedom to love and serve and lay down our lives for others. But because the gospel brings us into this divine freedom, it also simultaneously sets us free from human controls. I don't mean, like I said, total liberty, as if we'll never need to submit to anybody. But what I mean is that the gospel sets us free from the need to obey humans who religiously and zealously put pressures upon us. We don't have to obey the legalists of our day just like they didn't have to obey the circumcisers in their day. Now this pressure, this religiously zealous pressure, it can come from a lot of different directions if we're, if we're just looking out for it. You know, one side in like the religious kind of environment will tell us that we have to dress humbly enough. We can't enjoy entertainment too much. Uh, we have to engage in enough religious activity we have to distance ourselves from the world enough. We can't talk about sex in any positive light. You know, things like that are added onto the church. Another side tells us to dress sustainably enough, to approve of, not just accept, people enough. We have to enjoy the arts and entertainment enough. We have to engage in enough community service. We have to distance ourselves from religious people enough. But the gospel, it sets us free from human controls like these. And it places in us divine freedom in a relationship with God. Rather than telling us what to do, to do this or to do that, the gospel says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go be led by the Lord and figure that life out. And there are thousands of legalists in our time, from the religious and the non-religious. And even, even those who don't believe in God at all, even those who believe that this life is all there is, often they zealously preach a version of righteous living to society with great zeal. Uh, rather than embrace the alleged accidental and meaningless nature of life, if you adopt that worldview, rather than embrace it and just say, you just do whatever you want, it's meaningless, with no foundation under their feet at all, they say, you better live like this. Why? Because we told you to. No, the, the gospel sets us free of human controls. One version of human control or legalism I'd like to just address today to throw into the sermon today is one that affects the parents that are here today. You know, yesterday we had a great time at our fall festival. It was so fun seeing a lot of the little kids of the church just in their little bounce houses and playing games. Uh, I got dressed up for it. I don't know, for some reason, I decided to dress as an escaped convict. So I don't know. Your pastor is suspicious. But it was fun seeing all these little kids, little boys and little girls. And what I want to say to the parents is that you are swimming in a psychologized culture where it seems that almost every failure or every sadness that we experienced is because of our childhood. I don't mean to minimize anybody's past trauma. You know, it can affect us greatly, but all this talk of parents damaging their children can paralyze parents from parenting. But you're the only one for the job. If God wanted someone else to parent your child, he would have given them different parents. 
Don't let human controls shackle you from taking the responsibility. You know, kids need parents because kids need to be parented. So don't fall prey to the human control that says you're going to mess them up. We've been set free from human controls like these, and we can now live in divine freedom, a simple allegiance to Jesus. All right, let's close, though, with one last point. I'm going long today. Uh, In the final movement of the passage, verse 6 through 10, uh, Paul recounts this meeting that he had with the apostles, and what we learn there is that the gospel is versatile, not rigid. The, The gospel is versatile, not rigid. Uh, In this section, he he meets with and he kind of gives the details of his interactions in Jerusalem with James and with Peter and with John. He calls Peter Cephas. Uh, Three times all throughout the whole story, he talks about these apostles as seeming to be influential and seeming to be pillars. It almost sounds like he's being a little condescending when he says those things about them. Like in verse six, he says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Okay, but, but Paul was not being disrespectful to the apostles when he said these things, but he was being respectful to God and challenging the legalists. Paul knew that God and his gospel were superior to the apostles. Like I said earlier, he'd even said, if we preach anything else, even myself, we should be cursed if we contradict the gospel. But he also knew that the legalists had appealed to the apostles quite often. The apostles aren't stopping us from doing this. The apostles aren't stopping us from adding Judaism to Christianity. So now here, Paul describes his interaction with these apostles. It's like he's saying something like, look, the apostles seemed like a big deal to me. You've talked about them as a big deal as well. And they said that my gospel was legit. The same gospel that they preached, especially Peter preached to the Jewish world, I, they said, have preached to the Gentile world. It has different points of emphasis because it reaches different types of people with different beliefs, but it's the same gospel. And and Paul is saying, I would think that the apostles who seem to be something would know if the gospel I preached was the same as theirs. And the only real request that they made, the only adjustment they tried to make was this appeal to me that I would care for the poor. And that was the very thing I already wanted to do. In fact, he was probably there in Jerusalem delivering a financial aid package to the church in Jerusalem. So he's already uh, prone to care for the poor. The gospel does that to a human heart. Now, this part of the story, it just reminds us as we close out together of the versatility of the gospel. What I mean by that is not that it's a message that changes, it doesn't, but it has something for every culture that ever has or ever will exist. It's versatile. In that old children's book, Charlotte's Web, uh, Charlotte the spider tells Wilbur the pig that she's versatile, and Wilbur the pig, he's just learning things, and so he says, what does versatile mean? Full of eggs? And she says, certainly not. Versatile means I can turn with ease from one thing to another. And the gospel message is just that. It's versatile. It can turn to address one thing or another, often at poles and extremes. Now think of it. The the gospel message, it has something for the abuser, and it also has something for the abused. 
The gospel message can target a highly conservative or religious society like Iran, or it can target a lax and liberal society like France. It can target the poor, and it can target the rich. It can target people on both extremes of the political spectrum. It can target every tribe and nation and tongue. It can impact a teenager who's battling anxiety, and it can target an octogenarian who's battling aging. It can go into the jungles of South America and make a disciple. And it can go into the jungles of modern streets and modern life and make a disciple right where people are at. It has versatility to it that allows it to survive and thrive in any environment. In other words, the gospel is not like a factory line where you put people in and on the other side you get exact replicas produced over and over again. That's what legalism does. Legalism produces a rigidity where everyone has to look, talk, act, think the exact same way, but the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel's more like a garden that causes individuals to flourish as God intended them to flourish, bearing all sorts of beautiful fruit unto God. Jesus said it this way in Luke 5, verse 37 and 38. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. When Jesus said this, the religious leaders were struggling with the fact that he was dining with tax collectors and sinners. And he was announcing to them, look, I'm here with new wine. They all understood the analogy he was making, uh, the image of it. In that culture, if you took new unfermented wine and you put it in an old, already stretched out wineskin, as the new wine began fermenting, it would burst that wineskin. So new wine needed to be put into new wineskin that had not already expanded. It would expand as the wine expanded. And what Jesus was saying was, my disciples are like that new wineskin. The, the Judaizers, the religionists, they were too rigid. They could not accept, embrace, or house this beautiful gospel message that can reach into every tribe and nation and tongue. But Jesus' disciples, they were fresh, new, and ready. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we there? Are we in that same place? Do we believe in the versatile nature of the message of the gospel? Look, we have the same decision that the disciples, that the apostles had 2,000 years ago when they met with Paul. We have the decision, we have the question, do we believe in this beautiful gospel of grace? What we think of acceptance by God is something that we can earn through good works or religious ceremonies. If so, we've destroyed the gospel. Will we allow ourselves to come under human controls that tell us we must add this or that behavior to the gospel to be approved by God? If so, we've destroyed the gospel. And will we preach a message that forces everyone into a particular mode? If so, we have destroyed the gospel. Instead, we must accept this unearnable, freeing, and versatile gospel message just like the apostles did. Amen?